and welcome to Cranky Commentaries. As always, my name is Jake Domastro, and as always, I'm joined by my very good friend and co-host, Keaton Byer. Hello, Keaton. Hello. How's it going? Uh, not not too bad. Not too bad. Pretty you know. good, you'd say. Um, yeah, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta work on these intros. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's good. It's authentic. You really clearly took the time to think about it, how you were doing. Right. There's probably some sort of segue here, but I'm not going to try and dig it out, so let's just introduce the film that we're talking about today. <laughs> right, we're talking about Birdman. Yeah, so this is a it's a big film, I think, in a number of ways. Uh, in what sense? Uh, I just mean, like, in terms of its profile, in terms right, of yeah. its its legacy, so to speak. I don't want to, it's not that old, so legacy is maybe the wrong word, but... Right. Reception, perhaps. And then also... I mean, you know, I feel like Crank Commentary is, is, you know, get, getting some highbrow cred here by, like, covering some... Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Critically oh. acclaimed uh, films. Is you know? this the newest movie we've ever done? No, because we had Knives Out, remember? Oh, right, Knives Out, yeah, right. This is the second newest movie we've ever done. It's relatively recent for us. Well, it's a, I find it's... it it. It's at right at that period after it close enough to 2010 that I feel like it feels dated almost, if you know what I mean. You think movies from 2010 feel dated to you? Oh, yeah. Oh. Fuck yeah. I don't know. Like, especially the social media references are super, and like internet references are all already super dated. Right. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I kind of tend to think like, you know, putting a kind of reference like that in a film it's not always a good idea. Like, I mean, it's my, it's my personal opinion that you should never show a computer screen or yes. a phone screen in a film. Yes, we've, but... we've discussed this and and we agree we agree on that point. I think. Well, actually, yeah. I've been meaning because I do see every. I think about that every time I see a computer screen on film, and I've been meaning to ask you: Does that only apply to like, like LCD computer screens, or are you okay with like? Like you know, in like no, in like I mean, in like war games, does that whole movie put you off? Oh, no, I mean, and there's a reason for that, and it's because we don't really care what's actually on the screen in that sense. Oh, I see what you mean, like the actual like the, the I'm content saying on the you screen. You shouldn't have to read the screen, is what I'm saying. Right, you shouldn't have to. Yeah, right. Whereas in war games, it's essentially just a prop. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So it's but like, what if something happens on a computer? Don't get like, don't show me somebody's Twitter feed on screen. Is what I'm saying. Don't show somebody Googling something on screen. I hate that shit. Yeah, I don't like that either. I don't like that either. It's. I also don't like when they like show the like phone thing pop up on the screen with someone looking down at their phone. I don't know. Actually, in this film, they do. They do show. They phone they screens, do that actually. exact thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll, we'll get um, we'll get to we'll talk about it about but all this stuff because I think I don't know. I will make an exception for television screens because those are often used. Because I mean you're. When you're showing a television screen, you're generally showing something else that has been filmed. Yeah. You're not just showing, like, user interface. Yeah, you have a problem with showing user interface as a plot device as opposed to a prop. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It, it, it takes me right out of the movie. I don't know why. Yeah, I kind of agree. It just never seems right. It always feels wrong. Yeah, I mean, especially when 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 they have to, like change something about it as not to step on copyright or something yeah, exactly. like that. So like it's when like, it's like, I know what using a computer is like, and it's not like this. Yeah, it's like, 
you're on like face file and it's like a weird exactly it's inter- like this takes me right out because i know this is bullshit and they're like, like yeah they're like on a macintosh but it's like clearly a different os it's just like yeah i know i mean yeah even if you show me like somebody like googling something and it's actually google i still don't like it but, no like, no you know, no but it, it's not as offensive to me as if it's, there are degrees if they show a computer screen and it's like weird and changed in some way anyway that's kind of a, a rant that's a that side, is, yeah. uh, <laughs> somewhat unrelated to this movie although not completely <laughs> not entirely unrelated like i think that there is a whole con- there's a, a adjacent conversation there um yeah anyway my whole point is that um i don't know i find it hard to see films made in like 2010 or whatever and feel dated given you know that that's so relatively recent compared to all the films that I've seen. Yeah, no, totally. I just find, like, it's it's this very specific, like, the 2010 to 2014 era, I find, is, like, really? is a very specific cultural... Anyway, this is a really... This is a whole other conversation. <laughs> I mean, we'll yeah. have it again, kind of, I think, maybe more so in part two. Um, it applies a bit more. Okay. But right now, let's... Do you want to take a whack at summarizing the movie? because oh, uh, it might be a bit of a nightmare. You don't need to go into, yeah. into too much detail, but let's... let's. Okay, so basically, there's this guy named uh, Reagan. What's his first name? Don't know. Okay. Uh, Cast. Michael Keaton is Reagan Thompson, so his first name is Reagan. His first name is Reagan. Okay, so he's Reagan Thompson. Uh, and he was a uh, actor. Uh, Hollywood who actor. Is, he, yeah, he's a Hollywood actor who uh who's kind of washed. <laughs> kind of. He was uh he was famous for being in a series of uh superhero films called Birdman where he played the Birdman. Yes, which is immediately uh some comparisons to be drawn there. Well, I think uh, Michael Keaton when he first was uh talking to the director about this movie, he asked, "Are you making fun of me?" Yeah, he did. He totally did. <laughs> Are you making fun of me? He's like, "No, no." <laughs> I swear. Yeah, no, no. Um, uh, he's a washed-up like Hollywood actor, and he's trying to uh, put on a Broadway play, basically. Um, and he, it's it's supposed, to, and it, it's more like more uh, artistic, artistic, than, yeah, uh, artistic. Sorry. Right, and uh, basically, this whole movie is kind of about that but then it being like a microcosm for like his entire life essentially i don't know like yeah that's and then you also there's just there's so many little plot lines it's kind of hard to like go down it in a linear fashion you know even though the movie is Is very linear entirely completely linear (laughs) it's the most linear movie you could imagine exactly (laughs) essentially i guess the play actually like goes on and it seems to to be a success yeah well yeah exactly the ending is weird we'll talk about yeah. that leading up to it yeah it's like a series of un- of unfortunate circumstances in this play it gets getting worse and worse for him while he's clearly unraveling and then he hits a low point and then yeah. from there you know stuff happens we don't I don't really understand what happens to that, actually. He continues to unravel as the film unravels. Unravels, yeah. And it never comes back together, which, as I understand, is this this director's uh, want. Right. Have we discussed the director yet? No, we haven't. 
You want to take a crack at that pronunciation? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take a <laughs> I'll take a a whack at it. I've been pronouncing it wrong forever too. I learned today, yeah. which uh, really doesn't help. That you know, it's burned <laughs> into my brain wrong. The wrong way. Okay. I had the R and the N's mixed up in his name. Oh. So it's actually Enyaritu, right? Enyaritu, yes. Enyaritu. Alejandro, um, Alejandro Gonzalez Enyaritu. Right, yeah. Because I, I, I had, I thought it was Iranatu for some reason. Well, that would be correct. <laughs> that is incorrect, yeah. Even though I've seen him, he's, uh, he's you know, a double Oscar, well, more than double Oscar winning, I believe. Back to back Oscar winning. Back to back. Can he do the three-peat? Can he do the three-peat? <laughs> That's a, that's a, we'll see when Limbo comes yeah. out. So yeah, so I guess that's kind of it for the summary. I don't know how how much yeah, more. Yeah, I don't know how 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 useful it would be to, to, to really go any more any more detail. Like watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's our general stance in this podcast. Is I think I think I think you need to watch the movie. So tell us a little bit about. Uh... Alejandro. Well, I don't really know too much about him. I know he was a radio DJ. Like he started his career like in the eighties as like a radio DJ where he there's like this like list of famous rock stars he interviewed in the eighties. Uh, <laughs> oh, cool. in Mexico City. And then he kinda just like blasted onto the scene with his first feature length film, which I've never seen and you've never seen. <laughs> no. In the year two thousand. Uh called Amores Peros. But apparently it was he's got quite a few short films as well. Again, none of none of them I've ever seen. Yeah. But yeah, so this this first film is 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 t- taken quite well because, you know, he's pretty much immediately with his first three films establishes like a pretty uh a pretty renowned uh, uh reputation just for his storytelling cuz his first three films right. I think they call it the death and we should say specifically critically, right? Critically, yeah, yeah. Definitely Yeah, not. like none of uh none of these films are like, you know, blockbuster successes. No, it took him like a little that. while to get to to get to that level, but like critically and like I think actors and other filmmakers really respected him. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But yeah, this first three films are called like the Death Trilogy, I believe, and they uh they revolve around each one kind of revolves around like a, a, a one specific tragedy and it's like a series of inter intermingling storylines so you know he, he he's an artistic director through and through i think and all his early films are you know heavy dramas as i understand but again i've never seen them so if someone yeah i mean i'll confess that this is the only film i've seen by this director yeah. i have not uh i have not seen the Revenant. no so yeah that's 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 the other film he won his oscar his most recent oscar for his, and it's also his most recent film, 2015's yeah. The Revenant, starring, uh, you know, Leonardo. I mean, you think when you win back-to-back Oscars, like, there's got to be some pressure on you to, like, you know, make the next movie, like, uh, of yeah. similar quality at least. Yeah, probably. Yeah, there's some pressure to be, uh, at least have it be <laughs> really fucking good. <laughs> yeah. I know. If nothing else. So he kind of, I think... Babel or Babel is the uh, is the really big one. Two thousand six, I think that's where he got his first Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. The point is, he he established a, a a reputation in in Hollywood as a very good artistic director that people want to work with. 
Um, and then the second thing is that in 2010, he makes a film called uh, Be- Beautiful, Beautiful, B-I-U-T-I-F-U-L. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't help you there. Um, and that's significant because it, it, uh, it's where he uh, is united with all the writers that are going to be uh, working on this film. And I think some other people, like part of the crew is kind of put together on that film. And that also gets uh, some Oscar nominations as well as... Uh, I believe mm. Javier Bardem was the lead in that film. And he got an Oscar yeah. nomination. See, that one I'm aware of because it was in my realm of the Oscars, but I still have never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that kind of brings us to the, the production area of, of of this film. But let's kind of go through the, the crew and cast of, of just everyone involved in this film because it's, 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 it's quite a big cast and crew but apparently they worked yeah for like no money um really yeah oh because they just all want to work with them is that it well that's we'll get as we go through this this section here that's i think the the understanding it's gonna that's gonna bleed through is it seems like everybody was like scrambling to work with him oh okay interesting but yeah no actually the um just i was going through the imdb uh page on this and yeah it's a really really big crew yeah exactly like there's a lot and of cast as well a lot of stuff uh involved we'll, we'll get into why i think more so in part two but yeah so we've already mentioned michael keaton starring in it but you've also got zach galifianakis edward norton uh amy ryan emma stone naomi watts and andrea riseborough and I think solid cast. Yeah, it's a really good cast. I think um, there's a few lines that are a bit cringy, in my opinion. But can you can you think of one or off of that? Mostly the ones that surround like Twitter, like the similar vein to the what oh. we were talking about earlier. I think. Well, I mean, I don't think that. I mean, I think they kind of really do make sense. In the, like, I didn't find them that cringy. No, they make sense in 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 the context. In the context, because the whole thing about like he was trying to be like you know, relevant by making this Broadway play. But then, you know, Broadway is not necessarily that relevant in our modern culture. And the other thing I was thinking of is, I think Zach Galifianakis had uh, improvised a few lines. Because he, said, he right. says a few things that have kind of an improvised feel. Are you sure? No. Because it was my understanding that basically none of this film was improvised and it was all, like, very, like... Uh, rehearsed down to like the every movement. Yes, I think that is true. We'll get to that more so again in part two. But yeah, yeah, I think that is also true. But there, again, there's just some lines that definitely don't seem. I don't like them. Anyway, that's that's just me being picky. Should we uh, should we talk about some of the, the the writing? Sure. So from the start of the film, I keep almost calling him Irinatu. Inyaritu. Inyaritu. From the start, he wanted just call him um, Alejandro. Alejandro. <laughs> You can say that, right? I can say Alejandro. So from the start, Alejandro has this idea that he wants to do a film in a, that appears to be a single shot. Yeah. I mean, based on this film, like that is something that really you need to know that basically that that needs to be the first thing you know when you're making this movie that you're going to try to make this look like it's a single shot. Yeah. Well, it has to be just baked into the film. Otherwise, it's... Yeah. Like... From the point that you're, like, even writing the script, you need to know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Um, but yeah, so that's where he starts as he starts just with the idea of a single shot film about a theater production. So then he calls up the other writers who I mentioned he met on the cat or on the crew of Be- beautiful, beautiful. Just, just pick one. Beautiful. Let's call it. And these all, all these writers, I, I hesitate to call them writers because they're not all writers. They all come from different backgrounds. Some of them are theater guys. One of them sort of a director slash writer, uh, Alejandro himself is a director slash writer, and then, you know, one is just a writer. So, but did they write the film? Yeah, they all wrote it together. So then they're all writers. So, uh, there you go. So we have, <laughs> uh, oh, geez, some more names I'm going to butcher here. I apologize in advance. Okay, I didn't have uh, time to uh, prepare this. Uh... It's okay. It's okay. Um, the first one, we'll just call him Nicholas. Gia Cabone. Giacobone. 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 Nicholas Giacobone. I don't know. Uh... Second writers, Alexander Denilaris Jr. Okay. And then finally you have Armando Bo. I don't know how you pronounce it with that accent. Don't know how that accent works. I, I don't see an accent. Uh, it's, oh, you didn't write it down. It's an accent aigu in French, but I don't know if it's French. Oh, I have no idea. I'm sorry. So yeah, so you have all these writers from different backgrounds, so... This to just give you an idea of that of those those two things. This is a, just a quote from uh, the first writer whose name I butchered, Nicholas Giacobone. Giacobone. Uh, I I don't know. Like, yeah, <laughs> when I see it, I see Giacobone. Giacobone. Uh, I could be wrong. I'll go with yours. Unless there's an accent on that. I didn't see one though. Uh, do you want to read the quote that he that he he uh, said here? So he says, we met in New York a couple times, Mexico and L.A., and just to start with an idea, the first notes Alejandro gave us were insane. It was one-shot narration, a comedy about theater. So we were excited and confused. For a while, we thought about it, and we thought about the main character and his journey and obsessions. The interesting thing is that the four of us, uh, we're two directors, Armando and Alejandro, and Alex and I are writers. Yeah. So we can approach the scene from different aspects. Yeah, and I think um, this guy worked in a theater, Giacobone. He yeah. was a, a playwright as well. So he had some mm-hmm. experience in the theater. So he, he brought a lot of that, I think, as well. Also about the collaboration, Alexander uh, Dinaleris said, um, quote, I think especially in the case of a movie like Birdman, our collaboration is uniquely suited. There are two very visual storytellers in Alejandro and Armando, and two writers in Nico and I. When you have a movie that's visually important to telling the story as this one is, the one camera is as important as any aspect. We had visual minds discussing how that would help augment or push the story forward. A movie like this is also dialogue heavy, so you have the two writers on that end. It was a fortunate accident. So I found that was a very, I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. Like, division of labor almost. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, but I mean, initially when I heard, when you see four writers, you, because, you know, they don't normally work together when you see four writers. <laughs> well, I mean, normally when it's four writers, it's like, there were they they wrote in series, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, like one writer did a draft, and then the other person did another draft after that, and so exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah, they each took a whack. But, but at not it. often do they do they all collaborate on the same draft. But I think I think Alejandro was the uh, the uh, the what is uh what do you call the circus? 
Barker guy. Oh, the ring master. The ring. Oh God. The what is it called? Shit. Ringmaster. Is it ringmaster? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he was the main sort of driving force behind this film, right? Yeah, like he called them up. He had the the original idea, and I think he had kind of the. He came up with the the story more or less, I think, and then they helped him flesh out the flesh out the details. Yeah, but there's kind of like this weird back and forth of like what the other writers say this film is about versus what uh, Alejandro says the film is about. Okay. Like, do you want to read just what uh, Alejandro said? What this film talks about, I have been through. Doing this, I personally experienced a kind of reconciliation with my life and faced things I don't like about myself, things which used to make me bitter. When he says, when I first read that, when he says, um... What this film talks about, I have been through. And I was like, oh, no. Do you need help? Did you shoot yourself in the face? Yeah, like, like, <laughs> are you okay, Alejandro? <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's that's probably an, um, an exaggeration. but Yeah, I think I think he, he, he clears it up a bit with the rest of the quote. Yeah, but... Um, so, but Armando Bo, on the other hand, had a different take, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. He, he, he said... Uh, we were laughing when we wrote. We were laughing when this movie started shooting, and we're still laughing now. That's not usually how it is for us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I find that's that's interesting though. That like you know, two people who like who both work on a movie can have completely different takes on, you know, what what the core of it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, because which I mean, you know, kind of makes me think like you know, does it. Does it really matter what the uh, original author thought it was about? Yeah, of course, exactly. Well, you know, you're getting to some. <laughs> well, I mean, it does some but... lofty discussions about art there, but yeah, yeah. It seemed like it seemed like the other all the other writers took it a bit less seriously. Not that uh, Alejandro took it seriously. Like he seemed to think like the way he 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 put it. Like this was him. And I think what he's kind of referencing there is him realizing, like, oh, my God, like, my movies are all so depressing and they've gotten to this kind of cookie-cutter depressing, like, he felt like he was going through the motions. So it was like he he's right. trying to escape from this, like, depressing rut that he was in and write a comedy, but... Well, I, I don't think he succeeded no. in that sense. No, he did, he did <laughs> his version of a comedy. <laughs> right, but I mean, I mean, this movie is... Like quite anxiety-inducing, I would say. Yeah, I know. Like, the, like every time it's called, it's like referred to just as a comedy. I'm like, I kind of wince a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really see all the humor in this movie. <laughs> like, no, me neither. I don't think it's as you said. Like, I mean, it seemed to be like almost more of a drama than it was a comedy. Yeah, but... I got that vibe as well. I found the the, yeah. the comedy aspects to be almost secondary. Yeah, exactly. Like you laughed every. You laughed in between tensing up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing kind of starts on a note of levity with like with him floating in his underwear like that. Right, yeah. That was the vibe that the movie was from the start. Like that was that scene was written yes. in from the beginning. Was it opening on him levitating in his underwear? And I think on the one hand that is like a 
it is there is levity to it. It is funny, but it also is like it's a super. Now I'm putting on my uh, my film school cap, even though I have nothing to do with film school. I'm not affiliated with any film school at all. But like, right, yeah. on the other hand, it's like, oh, he's so exposed and naked. Oh. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I know. That's, oh that's, that's um, my exact reaction as well. But that's also true because look at the director we're talking about. I think that's his films lend themselves, as I understand, the ones I've seen at least, the two of them, and then what I've read about the other ones. They lend themselves to a a film school analysis. Analysis, yeah. I was trying to think of the word surgery. What does a coroner do? What do you call that? Autopsy. Boom, diggity. Autopsy? Yeah. Anyway. I've lost my train of thought. Deconstruction? Um. Does it, it doesn't matter. I was just talking about that scene and how that kind of like was always there from the from the start of the of the writing process. Right. Yeah. So also there's a there's a good quote from uh one of the writers about the the shots and how they were like wrote mm-hmm. for the um the uh, idea of having it be like a long, one long shot um from so right. there's a quote from Dinalaris, if you want to read that. Okay, so he says, uh, because of the long shots, we weren't going to be able to get in there and say, we can cut that out when the time comes. We had to be very, very sure about what was on the page. And any writer who lives knows that you're never really, really sure about (laughs) anything, even in its final form. So for us, it was very, very frightening up front. And I think that pressure we had on us from in the beginning uh, was immediately translated to the actors when we were in production because then the actors would say, oh, hell, an eight-minute take. If I screw it up, my last lines... If I screw up my last lines, then we go to position one. So the pressure was always on all of us to be as perfect as we possibly could up front. And that's just dangerous and exhilarating at the same time. Yeah, so th- this just kind of explains uh, what I was kind of referring to when I said I don't think that Zach Galifianakis would have improvised anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're right about that, but I think because you've got like ten minute takes and you don't want to, you don't want to fuck around with it. Yeah, like what if the thing I say when I improvise isn't good? Maybe he came up with it. Regardless, I don't like those fucking lines. There's some lines in it that he says I I hate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> But yeah, the, the other thing I didn't really think about was like the writing aspect of the one take. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, basically, I think the the biggest thing about that is that you know you have to figure out how you're going to get from one place to another. Yeah, you like you absolutely have to have the sequence of the film there. Like you can't cut a scene later but if it's not working. I actually think that that's almost kind of bullshit, though. What they said there, because they don't really do it in the film. Because <laughs> like there are times that they they basically cut out a scene without cutting, like the time lapses. There's two time lapses, yeah. The time lapses are my biggest issue with this because you're essentially just there's a whole bunch of shit that I'm not gonna put in the, the movie. Yeah, that because <laughs> that's a cut exactly. But that's editing. You that's not just a cut. Like you're actually editing the the flow of time in that that way which none of the other edits do that is true yeah so it's not actually a cut as much as it's a well but okay so i think that i think that we need to kind of talk about this a little bit because like a cut like what is a cut like a cut serves two purposes right well one of which is cosmetic and one of them 
changes the flow of the story. Right. Yeah. Go on. So, so what they wanted to do here is essentially make it so that they removed all the cause, like they removed all the cutting, right? All the visual Which cutting. Is what they did. Yeah, yeah. All the visual cutting. There's still cuts. Yeah. There's still tons of cuts. There's in this still movie. cuts. There are parts of the movie that they don't show. They change the flow of time. You're saying that you're saying that it the whole film being in real time is 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 a lie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true because they have those two time lapses. Yeah. Yeah, those are the most irritating when you <laughs> when you talk about it. It's true. We can be Because you're not even doing the thing that you were talking about when you were saying that they wrote it. So like maybe they like because they could have inserted those. Th- they they didn't have to write those time lapses. Maybe they, they could didn't. Have maybe those later. were the. Maybe there were cuts there. Yeah, maybe they cut scenes out there. <laughs> exactly. You could do anything there, right? Yeah, I mean, there's only two, and they were pretty late into the film. No, I know, I know, I know. But I know. I think they're like worth any, pointing out. Yeah. They there are several times where they they change the continuity. Yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they'll never. They never do it out of order, though. At least. No, that's true. They don't. They don't jump, God forbid. <laughs> no, but I mean, most movies don't do that, actually. Most movies make it pretty obvious when they're changing, to when they're not doing things in order. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah, anyway, that rant aside that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, essentially what they did in this movie is they removed all the cosmetic cuts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk about that at length in the actual process, at length. In yeah, in oh, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, right? exactly. I'm sure that that part's gonna be pretty heavyweight. We're gonna talk about what they did. We're gonna talk about how they did it's it. It's gonna be sick. I look forward to that part a lot. Yeah, that part's gonna be awesome. Yeah, so. exactly. There's a lot so to talk about. Tune in next week for part two. Yeah, but but before that, <laughs> we have plenty more to talk yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> a lot more part one here. So the this this quote from uh, Dinalaris here. Is just something a uh, last little funny thing I wanted to insert before we finish talking about like the writing. Um, it's not really part of the writing, but I thought it was yeah, I thought it was funny. Okay, he he says uh, we exaggerated it. I'm amused by the theater people in New York who tweet, "Hey, you can't walk out of James, uh, out of St. James Theater onto Times Square." And I'm thinking, it's a movie. It's a movie. <laughs> he laughs. Um, it's not like having a consultant on a boxing film who says. No, in a gym, this is what happens. It smells like this. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a funny quote. He's just like talking about sort of connected to the continuity thing. Not really, but like just in the sense that like you have the fact that the theater that they filmed in, you can't actually yeah. get out into the middle of Times Square like they did in the film, even though that's the theater they shot in. So already you have like yeah. a, like a a cut of... You know, the inside to outside cuts we talked about when we watched the film. Oh, yeah. Like that's that's um, basically every time they do that, that's a cut. Yeah, I think almost every time they go from inside to outside, they'll do a cut. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, I think he, he, ha- he, he says it right there. It's a movie. It's a movie. Yeah, it's a. It's, I think you have to accept when you're watching a movie, like, everything in a movie is fake. Yeah. What were we <laughs> like, talking about that? Like, what did that, how did that come up last time we brought that up? Well, when we were talking about, you were saying like, oh, um, it wasn't actually all in one take, right? Well, I was talking about how, because everyone talks about, and he, uh, Alejandro even said, it's like, it's, it, he was a bit, it's a bit daunting because it could be distracting. 
and like you're always thinking yeah. about how it's obvious that it's not in one take. So I was saying like it's you're always looking for the cuts because it's because you know it's not in one take. Right. Okay. I was just saying because like I think I think some people at least probably had the perspective that like oh, you know, it's somehow less good because it wasn't actually it wasn't all actually in one, take. in one take. Yeah. It's like But I I I mean to me that entire perspective is just bonkers because it's like well this didn't actually yeah, happen this is michael keaton you're looking <laughs> this, this is michael is... keaton not rick and thompson i don't know if you knew that like you're looking at a, <laughs> a screen <laughs> like you're you're watching a mo- Every, everything is fake it's a movie <laughs> it's a movie to quote denilaris yeah <laughs> anyway uh that's just my little rant there yeah, no i think that's a good rant so yeah it's just if you're watching a movie I think you should already accept the fact that it's not real. Yeah, you have to suspend your disbelief too. Like, there's a degree, there's a level that's just absolutely necessary. And I think, I think. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying, do they, do, do you really care that they're not, that they're faking the way that they're faking it? You know what <laughs> I mean? Because I'm saying, when you're making a movie, you're faking it. Yeah, the whole. If you're complaining about the fact that it's not really in one take, you're complaining about how they're faking yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like if it looks like it's in one take, that's the point. Anyway, that's, that aside. That aside, yeah. So the last little bit about about the writing, um, well, not the last, quite the last little bit, but um, so the ending of the film, it's really weird ending that actually occurred. Do, do you want to just describe the ending a bit? Just because so we're going to go through some, like the alternate ending here. Okay, so... Uh... In the ending, he's waking up in a hospital bed after just having shot his nose off by accident. Yeah. <laughs> he walks over to the window, and does he step out of the window? Yeah, he jumps out of the window. Right. Well, you don't see him jump out of the window. Sorry. He steps onto the windowsill. That's all you see. Yeah. You see him st- and, step onto the windowsill. Um, he steps onto the windowsill, and I, I should just point out that in many seasons prior to this, he... They've shown him flying through the air. Yeah, and at one point he jumps off a building to do so. Does it... Does the camera... I'm just saying, there's not a cut, right? <laughs> no, no. I'm just thinking, how do we get from over to the window to his daughter coming so it's, the So it's the side, sideways view from inside the hospital room of him climbing onto the window. This is usually not something I have to think about. I know, about, yeah, but... yeah, I know. But so, yeah, so it's, it's a sideways view of him climbing onto the windowsill. He climbs up onto the windowsill as the camera is turning away from him. The camera turns towards the hospital room door and like slowly zooms in on the door for a minute. Then she comes into right. the door. His, his daughter comes in to see him. She's disturbed by the fact that he's not in the room. Yeah. She sees that the window's open. She sees the window's open, runs over to the window. Looks down. Looks down. Looks up and then smiles <laughs> as if he's flying. Is I think the implication as if he's flying exactly, yeah. So we'll get part two is gonna work. We'll talk about the absurdity of the actual ending and what is all going on here and what this film's actually about. We've got a part reserved for that in part two. Oh, okay. I'm glad. <laughs> but when, bef- um, before that, we could talk about the alternate ending. The so what they were considering what they actually because they so they wrote the real ending that we saw halfway through filming 
Yeah, so this is this is uh, what Wikipedia says about about the the original ending that they, they they had written before they decided to change it. The film's ending also changed. The final version being written halfway through filming. The original intended to depict Johnny Depp in Riggins' dressing room with a Pirates of the Caribbean poster in the back. Alejandro grew to strongly to strongly dislike this ending, calling it "quote unquote" so embarrassing, <laughs> and rewrote it. Yeah, I can see that <laughs> with Denilaris and Giacobona before a new ending came to him in a dream. Mm. Um, Alejandro was reluctant to describe the original ending, but it was leaked by Denilaris. He said the original ending was set in the theater instead of the hospital and involved Depp putting on Riggin Thomas's wig and in Jack Sparrow voice, the poster asks Depp, what the fuck are we doing here, mate? <laughs> and it was going to be the satire of an endless loop like that. The director and co-authors ruled out the satirical ending and favored the, more, the new, more ambiguous ending. <laughs> So that, does that mean that up till halfway through the filming, Johnny Depp was slated to go on the set I and shoot that, that scene? I think that's what that means. I hadn't heard that anywhere else <laughs> that Johnny Depp was ever involved. But there you go. That's what the writer said, <laughs> is that they had they had Johnny Depp being the next Riggin Thompson. But they it's so funny because they have Michael Keaton not playing Michael Keaton, but then they're going to have Johnny Depp doing the same thing but as johnny depp yeah i don't know i weird. find that's, that's such a weird ending and it totally changes the i mean obviously they thought that too yeah obviously like that's a bad ending that would they were like what the fuck were we thinking i don't know that would that would change the movie in, in a very negative way i think if it ended like that maybe not maybe if i actually saw it i, I would think it was brilliant yeah, well, I don't know. I think a lot of people probably wouldn't take it very seriously. It's true. I don't know if it would win an Oscar if that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Although I'm obviously assuming a lot. I don't know how they would Instead, they made it more ambiguous, which is always a... Uh... It's a streamline to the Oscars. Yeah, exactly. They made it more artsy. Exactly. It's just satirical. So now I think we should talk a little bit about WWTAWWTAL. Yeah, I had to look that up when you when you put that in the outline. Because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't understand what that was, but that is uh, the name of the play uh, that they are putting on in the movie, which stands for "What We Talk About When We Talk About Love." Exactly. WWW or fuck. <laughs> no, no. WWW. No, oh, fuck. I always want to do the triple W. WWW dot what we talk about. Right. So that's as obviously if a car a Raymond Carver. Do they actually ever say the name of the play in the movie? I think so. Or the name of the short story, you mean? Oh yeah, sorry. They definitely mention Raymond Carver. Yeah, they mention Raymond Carver. They say the I think the line what we talk about when we talk about love is in the play. Yeah, they do that, but they don't But I don't know that they actually say the name of the short story. Yeah. Um but that was one of the things that uh, Alejandro was adamant about from the beginning, I think. he wanted Was that it had to be that? It had to be that play because he wanted to connect the themes. And I think, I guess, maybe that was he related to it somehow. I'm obviously, that's, I don't know, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't actually know what happens in the, in the book besides uh, 
what I saw in Birdman, which is probably not a good source. Well, it's a, <laughs> it was the in the that's what we're going to talk about here, basically, just a little bit is like yeah. the actual short story itself is basically like the part it's like what you see in the play the part where they're all sitting around a table um right that is the short story is just that scene oh okay and like so it doesn't have the scene where he actually like tries to exactly shoot yeah that is an ad- addition as i understand that's i guess the implication that that's a Riggin thomas addition to the storyline right i guess um um yeah, I mean it's interesting though that you know the uh, the 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 book is all in one room and the movie's all in one. Yeah, take. yeah, that is kind of interesting. I didn't think about that. Um, and yeah. I I always get confused because it's like I for I always forget that it's not a play; it's a short story. No. Yeah, so, I mean it is a play in, in the, the movie. movie. It's a play. There's just there's so many layers. Yeah. But I was reading about the uh, the play, and I just thought it was an interesting detail. Um, about the editor and Raymond Carver. Uh, if you want to read this quote from just Wikipedia. Uh, there was some contention between Raymond Carver and his editor, Gordon Lish, over several stories in the collection. The author complained about the surgical amputation and transplant that might make them some way fit into the carton so the lid will close. <laughs> what? Eventually, the book was published... With Lish's extensive alterations and received critical acclaim, heavily edited. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So. Uh, oh, sorry. Heavily edited by Gordon Lish, who uh, who cut out nearly half of Carver's story, adding the details in on his yeah, own. Yeah. Sorry. That last little that last little bit is just regarding to the because it was a it was a series of short stories that the book was, yeah. and that was just one of the short stories. So that last little quote is just about this specific story. Um, what we talk about when we talk about love is that it was heavily edited. Hmm. Yeah. But the edited form was critically acclaimed. Was critically acclaimed. And they did eventually, um, his, Raymond Carver's widow released an unedited version. Yeah. And did people think it sucked? It was not as critically acclaimed. (laughs) But I think, because Gordon Lish, I don't know much about him, but he's, he's a, a fairly famous publisher who I think had a had a role in editing a lot of writers' uh, careers, but I think it, it I think it ruined their relationship, Raymond Carver and, oh, okay. and, and this guy. Um, but that's just a little little aside. I thought that was kind of interesting. I thought you know just that like this work has already gone through layers of editing, and then you have in the film you have Regan Thompson doing it even. Doing his own editing. Yeah, I don't know. I I just thought that that was interesting for some reason. Yeah, and then in a film that's look that's that looks like it isn't edited. Oh my god, <laughs> the layers, <laughs> man, just keep going. Yeah, but yeah, this is more uh, in line with the the film, the second bit about uh, um, what Alejandro said about Carver's work. If you want to read that bit. Okay, so uh, Inuritu uh, said that his um, uh, desire to use Carver's work was terrifying because the rights to using Carver's material were still subject to possibly being rejected during the development of the film, but no issues arose. Carver's widow, uh, writer Tess Gallagher, loved the script and permitted the adaptation, saying that Carver would be laughing about the film. 
So there were some potential legal loopholes. Sorry, legal pitfalls. Legal pitfalls, yeah. So I guess it was terrifying because he was like, well, from the beginning. It... What would they have done if that didn't work out? I don't know. Do you think he would have... Would they make it a different play? Yeah, would they like scrap the whole thing or were they actually just based around a different... I mean, to be honest, I don't think the play is there. Like, what is happening in the play is really that important. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, they could have done it with a different play. It's hard to say. I don't know that I, like, read... I, I, I couldn't see connections that... He, the connections that he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you go through making a movie uh, like this that clearly required, like, a great amount of individual effort there that, you know, I'm sure you... Uh, analyzed it to a degree yourself that uh, nobody actually watching it is gonna notice yeah, exactly exactly i think that's totally true but yeah which i mean you know most great works of art are yeah, exactly um but yeah that's so that kind of bring that brings us to the casting uh so the, the film was by the time they got funded uh, like it was basically pretty much already cast but i i the, thought the um the CEO of New Regency, which was one of the companies that funded them, had some interesting things to say about the casting. Uh, so this is Brad Weston, the CEO of New Regency. Uh, he said, Most of it was cast when we got involved. We switched out a couple of actors. Originally, it was Josh Brolin who was playing the Edward Norton part, and we switched that out for scheduling conflicts. But Michael was cast, Emma was cast, we need, We added Edward, and Naomi and Zach Galifianakis were cast. What was really interesting about this script process, though, is because of the one-shot style of the movie, we couldn't edit the picture. It was just assembling the picture of blah, 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 blah. So the editing of this film took place in the screenplay. And I think the first draft of the script was, what, 125 pages? Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's interesting uh, that... that um... It was supposed to be Josh Brolin because I think that that would not have been as good of a choice. I agree. I think Edward Norton's quite good in that role. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nothing against Josh Brolin. Just I don't think this is his role. <laughs> no, I agree. I don't think it would have worked quite as well. Um, they, know, they don't say what the scheduling conflicts are, but... <laughs> so, but yeah, that's interesting that um, the first draft was only 125 pages because, you know, clearly they edited the the screenplay um they edited the screenplay and edited you thought right? you'd think it'd be more yeah uh, i mean because well 125 pages usually you consider like you know it's a page a minute right yeah that's true what's uh what was that film we were doing that was like an obscenely long script is that once upon a time in the west oh. that was like 500 um, pages or something <laughs> yeah it might have been 400 and or, yeah, there was something... 472 pages. Which script was that? I can't remember right now, though. That, there might be another movie that we did that was, yeah, like, yeah. supposed to be, like, eight hours or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think it was Once Upon a Time in the West that, that you're thinking of. Um, I think... So So Alejandro wanted Michael Keaton from the from the get From the get-go. Get um, um, and it wasn't because... Or was it? Because of Batman. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, it's he says I no. I mean, it just seems like the name Birdman seems very directly referential. <laughs> exactly. It, I, it just seems like 
it was written for him. <laughs> I mean, it was, wasn't it? Well, again, yeah, I, I don't know if it, it necessarily was written for him. They never quite put that together, but it, it, it seems... They wanted him from a very early stage. Yeah, it seems like it, and as you say... Perhaps while they were still working on the script. Yeah, and as you say, like, Birdman, come on. Well, I mean, the, the the question is, are they, is it written for him because of the fact that he was Batman? Or is it written for him just because they thought he'd be good? I think it's, <laughs> or is it they bug? say it because they thought he would be good. Like what Alejandro yeah. said, he said, uh, um, quote, he was the right man for all the reasons. He can do comedy, he can do drama, and he has worn a cape. Well, that that's that's you know, it's an important it's an important aspect. Yeah, that sums it up right there. So that yeah, he he goes on to say, uh this is from Variety. He goes on to say, uh, I sent him the script, he read it, we went to dinner, I was afraid, and he said this is you brought this up, he said, Alejandro, are you making fun of me? <laughs> I said. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a, that's an obvious a question to ask. Question, absolutely valid question. Uh, I s- so he says no. He says no. He said not at all. This is a very difficult film to play because it has to be played with such honesty. Uh, and I'm going to do it technically in a way that's going to demand a lot of shit from you. That is uh, Alejandro speaking to Michael Keaton. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Alejandro told his prospective star that the part would require him to appear spiritually and physically naked on screen. That's what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Including a frantic sprint through Times Square in his tidy whities As they were getting into their cars after dinner, Keaton said to count him in. Nice. uh, Reading about it, it seems that Michael Keaton, basically the second that they had this dinner, he was in. Like... Right. I mean, it's interesting that... um the way I'm going to do it technically is going to demand a lot of shit from you. Yeah. Because I think that that's, that's something that, um, uh, that we often don't really talk about, uh, when we're doing, uh, when we're talking about casting. What do you mean? Well, is that like, um, I think that, you know, everybody who had to do this movie really had to be a complete pro. Oh yeah. They had to be a really good actor. Exactly. No, no, not just be a good actor, but, you know, act very professionally. I I see what you mean, yeah, because it's... Basically, you need to be okay with doing exactly what you're told to. Yeah, exactly. You need to do exactly what you're told in the exact order. Yeah, you need... you're going to fucking ruin the movie. In the exact order, and... And as we're saying, yeah, you can't... If you... There's so much pressure. You got a 10-minute long take. Exactly. You need to... You really just need to do your yeah, job. Listen <laughs> to directions and do as you're told. And yeah. do it well. Um Yeah, and do it well. And you it's gotta a hard act. job. It really is a hard job. Like yeah. I, you gotta respect all the actors in this movie. Yeah, because like, you know, missing your mark could mean that, you know, we have to throw out an entire ten minute take. Uh, exactly. And if someone does their You go back to square one and do the whole thing over again. Yeah. Uh we'll talk about it more in part two, but like the actors t- t- just talking about the stress like, in that. You definitely Yeah, you definitely couldn't have an actor without the right personality. Yeah, I think. And I think because you also have to accept the actors were saying like you kinda have to accept to a degree that mm, half the time your best takes aren't gonna be used because 
you know, the first half of one really long take might be the best one, and then the second half is kind of ho-hum, but, like, you can't stitch them together, but... No. Yeah, exactly. So... I mean, you could, but... <laughs> but you can't uh, in these, uh, the limits that they've set for know, themselves here. I know, here. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but, I mean, like, uh, we were kind of talking about when we were watching this movie that there's a lot of, um, sort of, there was more... Uh, continuity than we expected between this film and the last movie we talked about. Yeah, there, there really was a lot of con- like. And so I was saying, like, uh, you can't have an actor like Chad Palomino for this movie, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, no, you really can't have a Chad Palomino. They would know, like, for the reason that you're just saying, you need a real pro who's going to do what they're told. Exactly. Yeah, you need a, you need a real good pro does right every day. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. Um, so yeah, the last thing here we have on the on that is uh, Michael Keaton talking about Alejandro, and uh, it's a it's a good quote. So I think you should read it for us. Okay, the thing about Alejandro is he's got guts, huge, big, big balls, <laughs> intelligence, unrivaled passion, and he's enormously creative. He gave me a tremendous opportunity to do the very type of thing that is really what I got into this profession for in the first place. You don't often get a chance to work with somebody who has all those qualities. And he's nuts. <laughs> he's totally fucking nuts. But he's my kind of nut. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's sums him up. That's a very actory thing to say. I don't know. That just that that struck me as something like, yeah, that's spot on. The exact kind of thing I would have expected Michael Keaton to say about him. I mean, you know, I, it seems very much like you know everybody enjoyed working with him. Uh, I mean, they would have to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's <laughs> so much time spent. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the last little bit about uh, casting and all that. But uh, I think we have to talk about the music right now, don't we? Yeah. Well, the music is such an important part to the to the production. I said this movie was anxiety inducing <laughs> yeah i do remember that i think 95 percent of that can be attributed to the soundtrack yeah, yeah i think you're right and sometimes the lighting but... <laughs> so like how would you describe <laughs> this music um it intense uh unpredictable insanity so it's inducing. just it's an endless jazz drum solo right basically it's like a free jazz a constant free jazz drum solo that just doesn't stop. <laughs> and it never <laughs> finds its rhythm. Oh god. Yeah, no no, it's never it never settles down. It's always moving around. It it's um it always has you kind of off, you know what I mean? Yeah. It is it is it's very well played, but it's horrifying to listen to. Yeah, it which is which is why I think I had trouble getting a hold of the soundtrack. Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> 
because I don't think many people want to listen to this music in a vacuum. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't blame them because I, I don't think I could listen to it for very long in a vacuum. I could listen to it for a bit. Well, I could listen to it for about an hour and a half if it's part of the movie or how long is the movie? Yeah, <laughs> well, that's, yeah. I could listen to it for just shorter than the movie exactly. is while I'm watching the movie. Yeah. The, so so it was actually composed. It's a composed soundtrack. Yeah, no, it's it's not improvised, right? No, it's not. Well, we'll get to all the details. It's it's generally yeah. it's a composed soundtrack composed by a drummer. Uh, this is his first film. I mean, if he wasn't a drummer, uh, I think that that <laughs> would be an issue. Um, although, you know, who knows if he's actually a drummer? There's no rhythm. Yeah, I mean, he could... He could. There's no... <laughs> he could be anything for all we know. Yeah. He could be a chef. He could be. I mean, I kid. He's clearly very talented. Yeah, what yeah. He does. <laughs> His name is Antonio Sanchez. I guess he, he just kind of sort of knew Alejandro. I don't really know exactly how, but he said that he got a call in January of 2013 uh, and said... and. Uh, Alejandro said that because it's a dark comedy, he thought drums would suit the movie really well. No, I think this is the perfect soundtrack for it's this. It's perfect, movie. yeah, it's so perfect. It's I, it's 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 fantastic. But it wasn't his original. But also terrible. Also terrible, yeah. Like I hate this music. I'm not gonna lie, but it's perfect. Uh, I like it more than you do, for sure, in a real way. <laughs> but I, it is also unlistenable in a whole sense. Like you can't sit down and listen to the yeah. whole thing. But. It wasn't his original idea at all, actually. He needed to be kind of... Really? He needed to be coached a bit, because he says his original idea was to compose rhythmic themes for the main characters. Right. Which is not at all what Alejandro wanted. And Alejandro said he wanted something more spontaneous, jazzy, and visceral. Oh, yeah. That's definitely what we got. that's what we got. So Sanchez said, uh, quote, I was kind of lost when he didn't like my original approach. But then I realized I needed to just be myself and play the play the way I would always play on stage. It worked like a charm. So basically, it is. It's just kind of like just improvise, but also write it down. Right. Okay. So, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, the I think the way the music works is very similar to the way the it it goes with the way the film is shot. You know what I mean? Like it flows. Yeah. Exactly. Like, and it kind of there's no. It's it, there's no like beginning and end to it. It's just uh, it kind of just rises and it's a falls. flowing mass of drums. Yeah, it, it just rises and falls. It doesn't st- start or stop. Exactly. But the way they like wrote and recorded is kind of interesting. They said like basically Alejandro would describe the scenes to him in detail, and they would talk about the the purpose, function, and intensity, quote unquote, of specific sequences and. Uh, he would play and compose on the spot, imagining the whole thing. And he said, we must have done 60 or 70 takes for the whole movie. Oh, jeez. So that's insane. So he played the whole thing all the way through? I think that's what he's saying here, 60 or 70 times for the whole length of the, wow. the yeah, script. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, just uh, in terms of athleticism i know, you know right like, jesus yeah. christ it's intense and like uh yeah apparently they um they edited the film to the uh to the drums which i don't know how that works exactly in a one-shot film well because how did they edit the film yeah 
Yeah, I mean, for this kind of film, I would assume that they would play the drums to the film rather than the other way around. But but yeah, but apparently not. Um, but this is this is a super right, interesting yeah. detail about it's about the scenes where the drummer's actually in the film because you know the drummer in the film. Oh yeah, there are some because you see him, right? Yeah, but, you do see him. So Sanchez uh, was saying, I was on tour when they shot those scenes, so I couldn't be there for that. I recommended Nate Smith, a, a great drummer and a good friend of mine, to do it. The movie was shot before I recorded the final sessions, so he's actually playing whatever he felt like. Um, and then I had to learn his movements and play exactly what he played for the few seconds that he's in the so film. So cool. The hard thing is that my playing is featured before and after he appears, so on both occasions it was challenging to play my stuff and then imitate his playing for those very short moments and then keep playing my thing. So weird. It was a challenge to make it fit visually and musically, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Like... Because, like... Especially if it's kind of like a drum solo, like, you know, it's like... Yeah, you like... You probably... Like, the, their styles are, like, you know, probably significantly just different so it would be hard to like yeah you had to yeah it just seems re- like a real challenging aspect miming a drum solo so that you can play the same thing like that's hard yeah well ultimately despite how hard uh sanchez worked on this this uh uh soundtrack he was snubbed at the oscars despite how many oscar nominations this film received so he know he, he can, didn't he get nominated, get nominated and part of it was that they said that there was too many like classical pieces interwoven into the are there even that many yeah well the the, the academy said that it diluted the from the uh the drums but there are plenty of movies that do that yeah and apparently according to sanchez uh, alejandro himself wrote an appeal letter to the academy saying that the classical music is mostly used uh as a part of the theatrical play portrayed in the film and that he could have chosen a number of pieces but the drums were an irreplaceable piece of the film. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's it's complete bullshit. I think he deserves some some credit. But we all know the academy sucks. Yeah, so, fuck uh, the academy. <laughs> it sucks, obviously. Yeah, you know. and I think this is a great quote, like uh, an anti what uh, an anti Kubrick quote here about the classical pieces. Well, I think all those classical pieces are in a way great, but honestly, I if I would put in another classical piece in the it would be the same. Another good classical piece. It would be the same film. Yeah, I mean, but that that, that just has pretty much to do with yeah, the way I this know, film I is just, done, though, right? Like that's not the case for every film. But like, yeah, they did they did include some classical pieces. Like, uh, what do we have here? Uh, I have one of them here. Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, my there's too many random classical pieces already <laughs> in my. Uh, fucking thing
but yeah anyway uh they threw some tchaikovsky in there for good measure some yeah. uh uh some Mahler, uh yeah ravel <laughs> yeah who else rachmaninoff rachmaninoff yeah um yeah you know the classics yeah exactly um, but I mean, yeah, um, it seemed like, like he was saying, the exact pieces he chose, he didn't think are that important. Yeah, yeah, it, because they're, yeah, as you said, they're also like, usually just kind of part of the theatrical play. Exactly. Well, I mean, like uh, when he's giving a speech and stuff. Right at the end, though. Uh, when. Yeah, when he when he's it goes out the window. Yeah, I don't actually know what piece that is, but yeah. Yeah. That's not drumming, because. Otherwise, the scene would be too tense. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, again, it, it, there's it's very well uh, mixed. I think. Yeah. No. Like no. It it's kinda... it's uh, the music does its function perfectly. Yeah, and it should have been uh, should have been Sanchez should have got some more recognition, I believe, from the Academy. But whatever. Fuck the Academy. We're recognizing him here. He wins the Crane Kick Commentaries. Uh, composer of the week award <laughs> which is some say more prestigious than an oscar i mean yeah literally uh we just i guess every composer can which we've covered can retroactively be given that award given that that award yeah, yeah exactly composer of the week yeah yeah which actually it's not that exclusive of a club if you think about it no not really but still <laughs> There's, what, been, like, 40 of them? No, no, but I mean, like, you know, there's a varying degrees of quality in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not all of them have been great, but yeah. but <laughs> we have the but, ones that are great you get know, the recognition. You were worth talking about. Then there you go. And that's Some of them the real prize. Some of them we didn't, because they weren't. <laughs> but let's talk about, let's talk about what, what's always worth talking about. Welcome to Six Degrees of Star Trek. This is the segment that we all know and love, Indeed. where we try to discover the connections between this film and our beloved Star Trek. This is going to be a good one, yeah. I think. Uh, did you notice any off the bat? Off the bat? Um, no, I don't think well, so. Well, there weren't any direct connections, so I'd be surprised if you did. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I don't think... I know Michael Keaton's not been in Star no, Trek. but he isn't involved in this... So let's uh, let's get to it without further ado. Yes, let's. Um, so we are first going to start with Emma Stone, who is not in Star Trek, but no, maybe she I mean, should. I, could, be. I can see her being in like Picard or no. No, she's I too, can't. No, she's... I I can't at all. Um, uh, but she was in the movie Easy A in 2010. Ah, good film. It's actually quick. Pretty good movie. I actually haven't seen it. Good classic, you know. 2000s comedy but with a little bit of a or 2010s comedy with a little bit of a uh, a, a, a message to it okay but <laughs> Malcolm McDowell was in that movie really who did he play in that movie? he was the principal oh, okay <laughs> I'd be frightened That's... if Malcolm McDowell was my principal I would be frightened as well <laughs> <laughs> but uh he was also in Star Trek Generations the the film have you seen this Which film one Keaton? Is... 
Star Trek I Generations. I think. I, was it the first Next Generation film? I, I don't know. I don't. 1994. Uh, so Pretty sure it, I haven't seen that movie. It was the only. I think the only time that uh, Kirk and Picard have been on screen together. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, in that movie, I don't think I've ever seen. You've it never then. seen this know. movie. What? What's the plot line? Okay. Uh, it's it's somewhat complicated. Um, <laughs> so. Basically, it involves this guy uh, who's a bad guy, uh, who's played by Malcolm McDowell, actually. Nice. And he's <laughs> going to blow something up, I think. Anyway, he, like, Kirk, and Kirk is, like, already dead, but, like, uh, his, hate, his, like, soul is hanging out in this place called The Nexus. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not a good movie. Him and Picard have to team up to defeat Malcolm McDowell. So his soul and Picard work together. Well, yeah. Well, he comes out of the Nexus. Oh, and he becomes a human again. And he becomes a human again. Uh, Sick. They defeat um, Malcolm McDowell, and then, Chen- and then Kirk dies again. Makes sense. And actually, let me just say one thing about this, uh, about this film, because... The part where Kirk dies leads to, I think, the funniest thing that William Shatner has ever said. What's that? So, um, so Kirk dies in this film because a a bridge fell on him. Because a bridge fell on him. Okay. Yeah, like a, like a like a bridge, the one you like that goes over like a, a ditch or something, right? Gotcha. Yeah, bridge. Um, and so uh, Shatner said about. Was something about like, uh, you know, normally I say they say captain on the bridge, but this time it was bridge on the captain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gold. That's yeah. pure gold, William. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's gold. I love that. Um, but yeah, so there's the connection to Emma Stone, if you forgot how we got here. <laughs> I, I did actually, yeah. Because I'm 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 reading about Star Trek Generations now, and it was it is you're right. It was the first film. It, it was supposed to hand the off. First, the, yeah, uh, it, exactly. That's which is why they had both of them in it. They had uh, yeah. the first Next Generation cast. Film. Yeah, it's handing off the the franchise, so to speak. Yeah, it's going from one generation to the other. <laughs> you exactly, <will. laughs> generations. It makes sense. Okay, there's another one. Okay, and this one's interesting because it is. Two Star Trek connections through the same movie and same person. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, one of which is... Okay, so anyway, Edward Norton. Yeah. Okay. He was in American History X in 1998. Yeah. yeah. Avery Brooks was also in that movie. Avery Brooks? Who's Avery Brooks? Captain Sisko. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, I guess Commander Sisko until he becomes Captain Sisko. Yeah, but. I was just gonna say. I mean, you're just, when is it? What season is that? It's. I think it's honestly in the last season. Yeah, I no, say, I can't. I think it's before that, but it, it, it's it's a couple seasons in. He becomes Captain Sisko. Right. So um, he's in. Sorry, he's in American History. American X. History X with Edward Norton. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and you know who was also in that movie that I noticed while I was going through the IMDb page? Who? Jennifer Lane. Who's that? Kess. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Why, can you explain why you hate Kess to the audience? Um, so Kess is a, is a character from uh, Star Trek Voyager, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I, can, I don't think I can do it without referencing Star Trek Generation. Star Trek Generations? 
What does that have to do with this? The next generation. <laughs> oh, the next generation. Okay. If if she's like if you're gonna say De- something about Deanna Troy. Exactly. <laughs> she's like if Deanna Troy was entirely useless, but also right. so okay. So take Deanna Troy, and you know you know uh, a Firefly. Yeah, I know a little bit about Firefly. She's like if the character River from Firefly was merged with Deanna Troy. Right. But also not <laughs> as useful, not as intentionally useful as either of them. Okay. That's how I would describe her. Okay. <laughs> I feel like Kess isn't as useless as you. Uh, Kess is not as useless as Deanna Troy. I don't know. I mean, intentionally. I think Deanna Troy actually ends up helping out with her skills. Kess is just inherently powerful but this is a whole aside a little rabbit hole yeah it's a bit of a rabbit hole okay that's fine but yeah that was our uh those are second two-step connection here sick okay last connection because we always do three yeah i could be going more but you know i ain't nobody got time for that we could theoretically just never stop yeah i mean how many like how many do you want me to do i mean i'm I'm not doing more than six steps deep but i mean i'm sure if you i'm sure if we even went six steps deep we could find like an in well i think the entire premise is that you know uh with with six steps is enough to get between anybody right exactly six is the is the that's all you need yeah I mean, I don't know if anybody's actually mathematically proved to this, but maybe they have. Who knows? Seems seems right. Yeah. It's practically um, seems. I, I couldn't imagine taking more than six steps to connect anybody to Star Trek. Yeah, you just have to make the right steps. And even fewer Even than... you or I. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the final connection, Michael Keaton, uh, who is not in Star Trek. No. Unfortunately but not. He was in a 1986 Ron Howard movie called Gung Ho. <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, we briefly mentioned that film. Did we? Well, just in the sense that Ron Howard did it. Right. And I think we talked about what it was about. But that was right. that was almost one year ago. Wow. Uh, or more, maybe. Who more, knows? yeah, probably. Um, but uh, anyway, in that movie is uh, Patty Yatsutake... Who plays Nurse Ogawa in Star Trek: The Next Generation? Oh, sick. Um, is that who is that? Wait, hold on, Nurse Ogawa. Yeah, she's one of the nurses in Star Trek: The Next Generation. At one point, she gets turned into like, well, everybody gets turned into animals in that episode. But um, yeah, she hasn't have taken on a huge she, role in in the well, first she's, three she, or four seasons. She doesn't really have that big of a role in the show. Oh no, but dude, she has she a does... name. There is an episode uh, where she uh, she leads the uh, an away mission, I believe. Oh, really? Okay. Maybe I think. Yeah. Of it I mean, she's a character, character that's in several episodes and has a name, so that's more than most. That is more than most. Yeah. <laughs> that that gets her special status in Star Trek universe. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sure her memory alpha article is longer than one might expect. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly expect it to be pretty long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's all I have to say about um, Six Degrees of Star Trek here. That's all I have to say about that, yeah. All right, well. So, I guess that's uh, that's all for 
this episode, Indeed. but we're not done with this movie nope. because, you know, there's several not. key aspects we have not explored. Arguably some of the most important aspects yeah, of this I would, movie. I would say probably the most important aspects are coming in part two. Yeah, so uh, we're going to talk a lot about, you know, how they shot it. Yeah. Uh, um, we're going to talk. Yeah. Um, what else are we going to talk about? A, a lot of stuff. Like how they shot it. We're going to talk about production. Um, some uh, some theories. We're going to get into the actual, like... We're going to get into some analysis. Analysis a little bit, which is not really our, our can of worms, but... No, it's definitely not. But, this is... You know. It, we it, can. Uh, there's reasons for it. We'll, right. But we'll get into all that next week. Okay. And well, I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, and we will catch you next week with the uh, rest of this. Absolutely. Play us out. <laughs>